An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people, from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists, to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Estelle Parsons. Estelle is truly one of those people who need no introduction, but we're going to do it anyway, but I'll keep it short. Amongst theater people, Estelle Parsons is revered as an actor's actor. She won an Oscar as Best Supporting Actress in Buddy and Clyde, another Academy nomination for her work in Rachel Rachel, five Tony nominations, a BAFTA Award, an Obie, a Theater World Award, and has been inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame. She created a memorable character as Bev Harris, Roseanne's television mom. And that doesn't even scratch the surface of Estelle's acting or directing credits. As a director, she has staged works by Shakespeare, Wilde, and Brecht, and Oscar Wilde. She's a former artistic director at the Actors Studio and is still a stalwart at that esteemed institution. She is, she says, most alive on stage in front of a live audience. Anyone who's ever seen her in Miss Margarita's Way or August Osage County understands intuitively and completely what she means. Welcome, Estelle. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. So interesting people have often had interesting lives, and you certainly have, from being the youngest elected official in your hometown. That's right. And the first woman. And the first woman. To being the summer replacement host for today's original host, Dave oh, Harris. Yeah. Well, that's a long story because I was one of eight people who put together that show long before Dame Garraway came on to it. So you sang in nightclubs. You've had yeah. an incredible seven decade career in theater. So what's your origin story? How did all this come about? By chance, the whole life. I never thought of anything beyond today. I never thought of what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be. I never had any long-range plans, which I gather people do, young people, maybe more now than then. But anyway, I just feel lucky to get through each day. What started you down the route to acting, if you didn't have any plans? Oh, well, when I was seven, my mother took me to a community theater in Lynn, Massachusetts, we played at the, uh, it was called the Tavern Players, and we played at the Women's Exchange Building in Lynn, Massachusetts, with a very fine director who I guess thought I was talented, even young. And so I played lead in a lot of children's plays, The Land of Oz, which was uh, one of the Oz books, obviously, where a little boy tip turned into a princess, that would be me. Then I played a frog, I played Little Bo Peep, and I played a plate, and I played everything. By the time I was 15, I felt, of course, that I was, a, how do you say, a professional actress. So, of course, I never got paid a cent for it. 
But I felt that I knew everything about the world of acting, and indeed I did. You know, you got to go out on the stage and see what happens and do it. But you were going to go into politics instead of acting. Well, I didn't think, uh, you know, my I'm from a very old New England family, 1632, and it didn't seem as if acting was a career for grown-ups. I thought it was something people did when they were children. But also, I got to the point where I was 15. I didn't want to kiss boys on stage in front of people. I didn't want to do anything sexual in front of people, which kind of impeded me on some level, right, from continuing because obviously the next step was where you'd have to kiss some guy on the stage, right? And I didn't want to do that. And so I thought politics, um, which also interested me because my father was a politician to some extent. You know, he was a selectman and then he was in the state legislature and that sort of thing. I went to Connecticut College and I, of course, planned to be an English major, but um, they started talking about the Scottish play intellectually. And I got so upset that they would talk about this drama intellectually that I went to the dean and said, I'm changing my major to government. And she, in her lack of wisdom, said, okay, go ahead and do it. So I became a government major. And then, I, of course, just I started a political club there with a woman who went on to be a big judge. And so I thought politics was a good thing. I like speaking in public. And then when I came to New York and was on the Today Show, or working for the Today Show, actually, because I was never actually on it as an acting person, I was always a... Uh, in the news department, I was one of the writers. Well, it's all such a long story, John. You were the first female political correspondent at any day. Yeah, right. And that was because a friend of my parents had a friend who was visiting from New York and their Cadillac, Cadillac broke down in Marblehead. So when the Cadillac got fixed, the person called and said to my mother, would Estelle drive this car back to New York? So I said, sure. I was out of college. I was hanging around. And so I drove back to New York, and it turned out my roommate at college, her sister was married to a guy who was uh, vice president at NBC, whom I knew, of course. So I went in to say hi, and he said, hey, they're starting morning television. Why don't you go and see more Werner? He's a radio man from California, and he's going to run the morning program. Nobody who was in television wanted to be on in the morning because they thought it wouldn't last. They thought nobody would watch television in the morning. So I said, sure, I'll go see him. He said, send me your resume. I didn't know what that was. So I went home and typed up single space, the whole story of my life, and sent it to Anyway, we became great friends, Mark Werner and myself, and he, of course, hired me. So I was one of eight people who started morning television because nobody from nighttime television wanted to do it. And it was the same. I was in London playing in Miss Margarita's Way when they started morning television. And they were still saying the same thing. Nobody's going to watch television. They wanted to say, I am proof. People are going to watch it. And then, um, I so I was hired as a kind of um, 
you know, what do you call those girls, assistant or whatever? It wasn't actually a gopher. There was nowhere to go for anything. But um, anyway, you know, there was just so few of us. So I handled the literary features. I handled the handled the fashion features. I had Givenchy on the program when nobody knew who he was. He came from Paris. And I had uh, Maurice Herzog, who climbed down the Persian Lost Dollars, Fingers and Toes, because he had written a book. And so, you know, I was doing that kind of work, and that put me in the news department. And then Dave Garraway said, you wrote this stuff for me, but why don't you do it on the air? So I did. And and yet I read somewhere you felt like you didn't know what to ask Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. What would you ask Marilyn Monroe? If you were thrust with four other reporters <laughs> into the house where she was going to live in some place with Arthur Miller, what would you ask her? I might ask a lot of things, some of which I'm going to ask you. So let's keep going. <laughs> the year after you won your Oscar, you were nominated for another Oscar. Yeah. And Rachel, Rachel, I think that was Paul Newman's directorial debut. Yeah, it was. So two years in a row at the Academy Awards, you were a bona fide movie star. You still are, but at that point, current and things. And I suspect many actors would have stayed in California and adopted their life. Movies and stuff. Oh, yeah. And you've always made it clear that while you will do movies and television, you have no interest in being a movie star. That you, you, you want to be on stage in live theater. Yeah. Why? why? Because uh, and you're in a room with a lot of people. There's nothing like it. It's a great experience. And that's what I'm after. Define how you perceive that experience. Is it, do you get energy from the audience? Do you, what, what do you get on the stage that you don't get staring at a camera? Yeah. I mean, if you're in a room with, uh, say, 99, People or 299 people, which used to be kind of off-Broadway, or, you know, all the people on Broadway, which would be about 500. I've played without microphone to uh, 12 people. That's about as much as you can reach without a microphone, if you have a good big voice, which I did have. And there's a huge, huge energy in the room, which, if you give yourself to it, is terribly exciting. And, of course, the really hard job is to be able to give yourself to that moment, to be willing to be, I can say this intellectually now, because if you are willing to bring all of yourself into that situation, you know, I think of the Coliseum and the men who are fighting the lions, but if you can bring all of yourself into that situation, then amazing things happen to you and the audience. And that's that's what's terribly exciting. I didn't know these things were inside of me, the things that would happen to me on this stage. Nothing interesting. I mean, I couldn't tell you if you asked me exactly what was I doing, what was it. I couldn't tell you. I can only tell you one thing that happened emotionally when I was working with Lee Strasberg in his private classes. I was doing a comedy. So with this guy, I went out to do the comedy and I started crying. I don't know why. And I just kept crying and crying all through the scene. And afterwards, Lee Strasberg said, oh, my Lord, that was such a wonderful choice to be crying all through that. 
But of course, I hadn't made that choice. I just went out there and it happened. It's magic, isn't it? It is. In fact, I was going to ask if there were moments you remember. Are, are there any particular roles that you've played that, that stay with you? Well, at Christmas Margarita was an ex- astonishing piece of material. For our listeners who probably haven't seen it because of the generational thing. Yeah. Um, could you describe it briefly? Well, Miss Margarita's Way is a play that's done by a demented eighth grade school teacher. That's the metaphor. Direct to the audience. And it was written by a Brazilian at a time when Brazil was a terrible dictatorship, and it's about totalitarianism. Not a lot of people are interested in mixing it up with audiences, but you can imagine at that point in my career, I was very interested in it. And so a guy was, a guy from Paris was interviewing me, and um, I told him I was getting hired of acting because uh, I couldn't get no audience. And he said, well, I'm doing this play that Annie Giraudot did in Paris, and I'm doing it in Belgium when I go back, and I'm going to send it to you because I think it might interest you. And that was Miss Margarita's Way, which was this play with this totalitarian dictatorship, a great teacher, because Freud said, when they get to that age, they're unmanageable. You can't teach them anything. And every middle school teacher will tell you that, right? Have you ever taught schools? No, but I'm married to a behavioral pediatrician, so I get it. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I started to read it in French, and I thought, oh, boy, this is great. And we got in touch with the playwright, and he wanted to come up and direct it. And I said, great. And so we did. Is there any role that you've ever wanted to play that you haven't had a chance to? I never ever even thought of what role do I want to play. You know, I never went to school to be an actress. And I, and so, but I was an actress by the time I was 15. And I mean, I knew how to function on the stage. You know, I knew to be quiet in the wings. I know when it's time for you to go on, you have to go on. I knew it's a terribly tight structure and tight discipline. And I knew all that, you know, but it never occurred to me to care what I was doing out there because someone always said to me, do this. So I spent my whole life like people would send me something and I'd say, yes, okay, I'll do that. And I didn't know literature. I still don't. I still don't know. I still have not read all because I told you I left the English department because I couldn't stand people talking intellectually about drama. So I was a total ignoramus, which I still am. I still don't know Othello well enough to really understand it. I mean, well enough to really hear it. You did work. We're going to talk about the actor studio in a minute, because I know that's dear and dear to you. But I read somewhere that you actually had worked on a Hamlet at the actor's studio. I did. Is that a role you would have, you said, no one's going to cast me as Hamlet? Well, nowadays, someone might have. But well, before, before I did it, Judith Anderson had Judith done it when she was very much older. Is that a role you would have like done it at Carnegie Hall? No, no. I'll tell you why I did it. And it's strange because it's happened to other people, men, though. My father had died. And I thought it was a way for me to. Of course, I didn't think this. I can tell it to you now. But my father had died, 
And Judith Anderson had done it at Carnegie Hall, some soliloquies and or something. And I think I was looking for a way to express my grief. You know, being from New England's very hard because you're so repressed that you don't really know what the heck is going on with you. You just know you do things. Oh, that's my experience. So I thought, well, I guess I'll do that to be or not to be. <laughs> so I did. And Lee said, you can't do that. Women don't do Hamlet. And practically everybody in the room rose up with Lee. Judith Anderson did Hamlet. He was very distressed that I was doing it. Because that's not what acting is about. And if you're going to use your own emotions, according to Stanislavski and Lee, you're supposed to wait until they're seven years old, at which time your emotions will be manageable. Because if you're going to use them as an actress, you have to be in control of them and manage them. And until they're seven years old, you are perhaps not in control of them. So you mentioned Lee, Lee Strasberg, of course, founder of Actors Studio. Tell me about the actor studio. I, I, I almost get the feeling it's your second home. Why do you feel uh, yeah. so so close to it? Well, acting is a lonely life. And so it's a place to go. I never, ever felt I was out of work because anytime I didn't have a job for money, I could go to the actor studio and do it. It was started by um, Lee and a couple of people in the group, Theater Bobby Lewis and Ilya Kazan. And it's the only place in the world now that is run by actors for actors. And you can do anything you want there. Once you're a member, we have sessions Tuesdays and Fridays from 11 to 1 and always have. And Lee used to say, wherever you are in the world working in films, I suppose, you know, or in anything, you always know that we are here. Your community is here. Because it's, if you don't have a community as an actor, it's really a terribly lonely life while you sit and wait for the phone to ring or go out and hustle for your next job. It, it gives you a place to work. You just sign up and you have your time and you have the space and your colleagues can critique you. You can talk about the work so that I never, never in my acting life, which um, I did musicals until I was 32, I guess. But never in my acting life after musicals did I um, feel lonely because I was always there with a community of actors. Do you have a definition of a good play? I mean, I've always thought that if I'm thinking about a play 48 hours after I've seen it, if it sparks my focus days later, it's a good theater. I must say my definition probably is not what makes commercial blockbusters, but what's the definition of good theater for you? I just have to say what comes to mind. Ostermeyer's work on Hamlet, which toured Europe for 14 years and then eventually came here to BAM. I've seen Hamlet a lot and I, I never really knew Hamlet until I saw Ostermeyer's production of it when it came to BAM. And now I feel that I know Hamlet. And it's about the silences. Shakespeare is such a tricky thing because it's like music, you, you have to go on. But on the other hand, it isn't like music because you have to start. You mentioned that you did musicals. 
And you started your career as a singer. Yeah. Right? Well, well yeah. Part of your career. You've had so many different careers, but that part of your career. Well, singer and piano. And, yeah. Right. I don't think you've ever directed a musical, though, have you? And would you ever want to direct a musical? And if so, would no. you? Why not? I'm not interested in musicals. I'm not interested in that form particularly. I was doing a lot of them, and I did like, I was standing on Broadway singing in some yet another flop musical. I thought, why am I doing this? And so then I started looking for good material, and that would mean to me Brecht. Socially important material is what's important to me. So I looked to Brecht, and then I did all of the Brecht I could. I did Man is Man. I did uh, Mahogany. I did Three Penny Opera for years. And Toured with that with uh, Lottie Lenya. That was, of course, a great experience to share a dressing room with her. When I studied at the New England Conservatory of Music, every recital they always said, Well, Estelle is the best singing actress. They never said, Estelle is the best singer, which I would not have admitted that even to you, even 10 years ago, maybe, but in my age and wisdom, I understand that I really wasn't a very good singer. So you mentioned wanting to do right because of the social import. Are you doing a project at the Actors Studio where you have an unscripted play with um, oh. actors who are... Where, uh, Playing recently incarcerated people. Oh yeah, I have a yeah, I have a devised. They call it devised theater now. Oh. You know, it's improv theater, but they call it devised theater. Tell us about it. I went to Sing Sing to see them do a stage version of On the Waterfront. I was invited by some friend of ours who do, does that sort of thing. So. I said, what can I do to help out? Because, you know, they like to have arms. The recidivist rate with prisons is um, around 60%. And for the people who are involved in the arts, it's 6%. Is that incredible? So art saves lives. It really does. So anyway, uh, I said, well, we have this play a woman wrote, and she did a lot of research with uh, formerly incarcerated people. And uh, so uh, I got, or they put her in touch with me, and she said, well, they always want me to cut my play. My play's not ready to cut. I need to work on it. I said, wonderful, because I have like 300 actors at my disposal here at the actor's studio, so bring it there, and we'll work on it. So I got what I thought were wonderful people, you know. One of the characters I loved, his mother had taught him how to hold razor blades in his mouth. That was my favorite character. But we took her play, and I got these people, guys, it's all men. I got them to read it. Then one day, one of the guys in the play came in to work on it, and he said, I've got a story for you. And he said, I just was in the subway, whereupon one of the other guys got up and pretended to be a homeless man in a subway. And they started doing their own work instead of doing the play. And so it was not a plan to take this woman's play and open it up to devise theater. These people did it themselves. And they just kept doing that. 
And the playwright disappeared because her mother was very, very sick and then died. So we lost touch with the playwright and with the play. And these guys just wanted to go on doing this. And it was clear that this bonding of six to 10 actors uh, was important personally as well as professionally. And they just kept on doing it. And that's why we have this piece which I take to New New Hampshire and maybe we'll eventually have a producer who will take it elsewhere if guys want to go. It's a great story. Let me just give a disclosure to our listeners. Estelle is a neighbor. Oh, um, that's a disclosure. That's a disclosure. She does not walk around with an I'm a star attitude. She is, you're, you're sort of incredibly normal. How do you maintain perspective? Because you are in a business. Like, I'll I, tell you how. You okay. stay out of Hollywood. That's my thing. I mean, that's my thing. I, I go there to work. I go wherever I have to go to work. But I don't stay in Los Angeles 10 minutes beyond my work. Any other tricks would be helpful because many of our listeners work in finance. And that is also an industry that famously produces people with egos. Um, and... What I often find is the really accomplished are those who don't always try to be the alpha person in any situation. And, and I don't know a lot of actors, but by reputation, some really accomplished ones are just very calm and normal. It's almost the second tier that's... Uh, well, John, uh, humility. Humility is the sign of, uh, of a really creative person, isn't it? Don't you think so? I think it's the sign of a human being. Humility? Yeah. I, I think there's a, a certain, um, I'm going to get a bunch of things wrong. I'm not infallible. And being in touch with that helps make you a human. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Okay. So people are amazed by your energy and health. I don't yeah, think you buy your You do. I don't think you're by your age. Estelle is 95. I mean, I was amazed 10 years ago watching you in August, Osage County. Oh, you're on, yeah. that How was, did I do that? I don't know. You were on stage for like two and a half hours or something. Running um, up a two flights of stairs. Yeah. And I, but I've read lots of articles about you maintaining your physical strength. You do yoga, you power walk, other exercises. I want to know how you maintain passion. What makes you get up in the morning? What makes you tick at this point in life? Well, this is a bad question because of Peter dying, because I'm dealing with a lot of grief, you know. But um, I get excited about what's going to happen in my day, or I don't. If I'm excited about what's going to happen in my day, then it's easy to get up. You know, if I'm not excited about it, I get up anyway. So I must be excited about what might happen in my day, huh? You never know what's going to happen in any particular day, do you? And that's a little scary, like when you're looking for a partner or something, I think, for people. That's a little scary. But uh, anyway, it's easy for me to get up. Let me finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? I'm always relaxed. So I don't have to ever relax. You know, you have to relax to do sensory exercises. So you get up there 
And uh, Lee will say, start the exercise. And I'll say, but I'm not relaxed. And he'll say, you're relaxed, start the exercise. So I'm a person who was born relaxed. I don't know how to be unrelaxed, how to be tense. I don't know how to do it. I'm sure that if I gave you a character that said be tense, you could figure it out. Oh, well, yeah. So if we're a character, maybe. You're a trained pianist. What, yeah. What do you like to play and what music do you like to listen I, to? I like, love Beethoven and all the variations he did on various things. I like to play that and I like to play Bach. Are they also the things you listen to when you're just listening to music? I listen to, uh, gosh, I, I, I listen to a lot of classical music now. I like to play the piano still, and I'm I'm really sorry. I had a big repertoire when I, you know, was in college and after. But then when I got into singing, I never have lived in a place without a piano. When I was renting places, the first thing I would do was rent a piano. But um, I I just regret so much that I can't play all the wonderful stuff that I played before. But then I got into singing, you see, not realizing I wasn't a very good singer. I'm okay. What was your big number? But, oh, the lady is a trail. When, when I sang with bands, my big number, I was like, yeah, I could really get a standing ovation singing the lady is a tramp when I was singing with the bands. Yeah. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you go? Be on vacation. I'd rather die than be on vacation. That's a big statement, but I think it's probably close to true. I I know you go up to New Hampshire. I grew up there, and I have a house right on the lake. So of course, I I go there. But I know I always hated going there, and I still do because I would rather die than be on vacation. Okay. Last question. I know you're going to say you just wake up and you don't have any great plans and everything else, but you've got to have accumulated a bunch of wisdom. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you whisper in their ear? Well, I'm anti-people, so I would not whisper in anybody's ear. If I had to whisper something about what? What am I supposed to whisper? Philosophy, life. Yeah. What I, what I say is just so vulgar and stupid, but uh, keep on trekking. I mean, I think you have to keep moving in every, in every sense of the word. You have to keep your body moving. You have to get up and walk at least if you don't do anything else. But then when you get older, you really do need to do something with weights or you do really need to keep moving physically and you need to keep moving mentally too. I think do a lot of reading of interesting things. I get so caught up in a novel that when I was a teenager, I stopped reading novels because I got so caught up in them. I couldn't do anything else but read a novel. So, and I think that's a very good thing because consequently I read all the time, very interesting stuff, but not fiction. So I learn a lot about a lot of things, and I think it keeps me uh, motivated. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik and our special guest, Estelle Parsons. Estelle, 
really is just a, a wonderful person. I'm thrilled to have her as a neighbor. And if you haven't seen her out, go look for it on YouTube or something. It's, it's worth, it's worth the search. Thanks, Estelle. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCundick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.